Well, good morning again. As always, it is a privilege and a joy to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 1? Last week, we looked at the first part of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which contained the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. And we talked about how that genealogy isn't just a list of names. It's a tightly packed summary of the Old Testament story. But Matthew presents it as building up to something. The entire story of the Old Testament, all the promises of God, all the failures and faithfulness of God's people, it was all leading to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we got this 30,000 foot picture of the origin of Jesus. This week, we turn to the following verses, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And here, instead of 30,000 feet, we are zoomed in on the details of Jesus' origin story. And so we see the story of the last two people mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, Joseph and Mary. And in some ways, Matthew has some explaining to do. There was a continual pattern in his genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and so on and so forth. But when we come to that last line in this family tree, Matthew says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And so there's a little bit of mystery. Wait a second, why is everyone else named the father of their son, or in the old King James, the one who begat his son, but Joseph isn't named as the father of Jesus. What's going on there? So we're going to see the historical answer to this conundrum, how it is that Joseph is Jesus' father. But as he always does, God, through the writing of Matthew, is going to give us way more than answers to our curiosity. He's also going to tell us who Jesus is and why it is that he came into this world. So we don't just need to get our minds ready for answers to our curiosity, but our hearts ready to be humbled and strengthened by God's word. So would you all pray with me and ask that God would do that? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, as we look at this text, we're going to first look at this conundrum of Jesus' parents, of who Jesus' father is, of his origin. And then we're going to see what God is teaching us in this text. And it's going to see, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to look at that line of fulfillment from Isaiah 7. Secondly, we're going to see in that Jesus' divine and human origin Third, we're going to see Jesus' mission. And then lastly, we're going to look briefly at Joseph's response in verses 24 and 25. But first, I want you to see that this story answers a question, an important question about who Jesus' parents are. Verse 18 begins with, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word there translated birth is the Greek word genesis which is where we get the first book of the Bible, Genesis. It means beginnings or origin. So Matthew is definitely telling us about Jesus' birth, but he is more broadly going to tell us about the origins of Jesus. We already mentioned verse 16, which breaks the pattern of Matthew's genealogy and says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now in verses 18 and 19, we get some explanation of why Matthew broke that pattern. Let's read those verses again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, This is a pretty straightforward story. Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married. And in the midst of that, it becomes apparent that Mary is pregnant. Verse 18 takes away one possibility because this is before they came together. And the first century is not that much different than our time. So Joseph is pretty sure he knows how Mary got pregnant. And what we see is that Joseph has decided that he is going to divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly because he doesn't want to put her to shame. Now, the use of the word divorce raises some questions for us because that seems to imply that they're already married, doesn't it? You may notice, too, that Joseph is called Mary's husband already in verse 19. The reason for this is because betrothal in that culture in the first century was different than engagement in our culture. Betrothal was much more formal and legal. It was a year long, and a breaking of the betrothal was called divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24 is an example of where you see this. So Joseph has resolved to divorce his fiancée. But because he doesn't want to put her to shame, he's going to do it privately instead of publicly. At this point, at least from Joseph's perspective, it seems pretty clear where Jesus has come from. From Mary and another man. 
But then an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph to correct him. Read verse 20 and 21 with me. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel comes to correct Joseph's reasonable assumption. It turns out that Mary has not been unfaithful to him. The child of her pregnancy is not from another man. The angel now tells Joseph what we already saw at the end of verse 18. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to come back to the virgin conception and what this means about Jesus. But for Joseph, he's still left with a dilemma. It's good that his fiancée isn't pregnant with another man's child, but she's still pregnant with a child that isn't his. This is not an ideal situation for Joseph. Lineage and parentage and inheritance was a big deal in that culture. But the angel is not unclear about what he is commanding Joseph to do. He tells him to take Mary as his wife, and he also tells him to name the child Jesus. Now, we we tend to focus on the meaning of the name Jesus, which we're going to get to in a moment. But what we might miss is that God is commanding Joseph to do something difficult. Commentator R.T. France says that the naming of the child was the responsibility of the legal father and ensured the official status as the son and heir. Joseph naming this child was the formal way that he would legally adopt him as his son and take responsibility for him. And what we see in verses 24 and 25 is that Joseph obeys. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This answers the conundrum of Jesus' family tree. Jesus is not Joseph's biological son. He is conceived in Mary by the Spirit of God. But because of Joseph's obedience to God, Jesus is his legal son. The concern of royal lineage, which is what we looked at last week, the royal line from David down to Jesus, was always legal much more than it was biological. And that's what we see here. Do you notice how the angel addressed Joseph in verse 20? He calls him Joseph, son of David. He's emphasizing the fact that Joseph is David's son, and now because of Joseph's obedience to God's command, he has legally made Jesus the son of David. Now, I said that Matthew gave a historical answer to the conundrum. God is concerned with the details of history, but he is also constantly teaching us the meaning of those details and events. And so we need to see not just what happened, but what God teaches us about what happened. And so we're going to look now at those four things that I mentioned at the beginning that God is teaching us in this passage. We're going to look first in the middle of the passage 
where Matthew says that all these things fulfilled something that was said earlier. So let's first read verses 22 and 23. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This idea of fulfillment is going to be a huge theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. That word, to fulfill, occurs 16 times in the Gospel, and 15 of those times it very clearly has the same meaning that it has here, which is bringing to completion something that God began or said in the Old Testament. We're going to look a little bit more closely at that idea of fulfillment in a couple of weeks because it shows up big at the end of chapter 2. But one thing that I think is very important for us to see here is that God is the original author of all these things that Jesus is fulfilling. That's key for Matthew. Notice in verse 22, he says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So this is very important for our doctrine of Scripture. The words of the Bible were written by humans, but they are God's very words, not just human musings or origins or opinions, rather. The Lord spoke this word through the prophet Isaiah. But this also helps us very much with the idea of fulfillment, because every time that Matthew says Jesus has fulfilled something, he has in mind the intention of God when he said or began that thing. God is the one who knows the end from the beginning, and he knew that Jesus would bring to completion each and every one of these things that he mentions throughout this gospel. We see two things that Jesus fulfills here. The quotes from Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, and it recounts what the prophet Isaiah said to Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time. In Isaiah 7, two kings are coming to do battle with Judah, and God's people are terrified. So God sent Isaiah to tell Ahaz that the kings would fail and God would protect Judah. But because he knows that Ahaz lacks faith, Isaiah says that God will give him a sign. He says, ask for a sign. So Ahaz acts really pious and says, no, 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 I'm not going to ask for a sign. I wouldn't put God to the test. And God essentially says, too bad, you're getting one anyway. Isaiah says to Ahaz, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign in verse 13. And what Matthew quotes is the promise of that sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds the meaning of that Hebrew word, that Hebrew name, which means God with us. And so both of the primary things that God is teaching us in this text are included in this promise. Jesus' divine and human origin is the first one. And then Jesus' mission, what Jesus came to do. First, the promise says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is exactly what the angel told Joseph. Mary has not been unfaithful to Joseph. She is still a virgin. Instead, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth, or 
more accurately called the virgin conception. Notice both in the quote from Isaiah and the words of the angels, the words of the angel, it's Jesus' conception that we're talking about, not his birth. This is what we so often say in the Apostles' Creed, in our confession of faith. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We said the parallel to that in the Nicene Creed today when we said he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And maybe a question that you've asked quietly if you've been in church and heard that for a long time is why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin? Why did he need to not have a human father? The first thing I want to say is, please don't be afraid to ask a question like that. The Christian faith is not threatened by questions. Because it is true, it can handle every question that we throw its way. So please don't sit quietly or silently with questions like, why do we believe this? Thinking this isn't the place to ask those kinds of questions. This is exactly the place to ask those kinds of questions. We need to come humbly, not with arrogance, but we should come to God with our questions. There are two main reasons why Jesus did not have a biological human father, according to Scripture. The first has to do with his identity, and the second has to do with his sinlessness. A careful reading of the Old Testament reveals that God was not just going to keep sending human agents to do his will. He sent the judges, the kings, the prophets, the priests, all of them to draw his people out of sin and back to him. Many times it's explicitly mentioned that the Holy Spirit of God was upon these people. But God says time and time again that eventually he would come personally to save and help his people. For Jesus to be the fulfillment of those prophecies, he had to actually be God. He couldn't just be a really talented human. He also couldn't just be a human with a special anointing of God's Spirit. He had to be God himself. And so Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. As we already said today from the Nicene Creed, begotten by the Father before all ages, light from light, true God from true God. This is seen not primarily in the absence of a biological father for Jesus, but in the action of the Holy Spirit in conceiving him. Where did Jesus come from? He came from God himself, because he is God himself. But in saying that, we need to be very careful that we say exactly what the Scriptures say. Jesus was not just a product of the Holy Spirit. We're not told exactly what the mechanics are of Jesus' conception, but Jesus is truly the biological son of Mary. He has Mary's DNA. He grew in her uterus and received nutrients from her body just like every other baby. I don't want to be graphic, but we need to be very careful that we don't deify the humanity of Jesus. The early church council of Chalcedon says that Jesus is at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. 
consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin. Jesus is made from the same human stuff that you and I are made from. He is truly Mary's son. His origin is from the Holy Spirit and Mary. He's not 50% God and 50% human, but fully divine and fully human. So that's the first reason that the virginal conception is so important, because it secures Jesus' identity as fully God and fully man. But the second reason that this conception of Jesus is so important is because of that last line that we read from the Council of Chalcedon. Like us in all respects, apart from sin. Jesus did not have any sin. This comes from the clear teaching of the Bible. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5 says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. Hebrews again says this in chapter 7, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The clear teaching of Scripture is that Jesus had no sin. But the difficulty with that is that you and I don't just commit individual sins. We have a sinful nature. We are sinful. We were born as sinners. Romans 5, 12-21 makes this very clear that we have all inherited not just the guilt of Adam, but also his sinfulness. Because God made him as the head of the human race. So even if Jesus didn't commit any sins, how is it possible that he was fully human and didn't have a sinful nature? And the answer that the scriptures give is that he did not come from Adam in the way that every other human came from Adam. God operated outside of the normal way of human procreation. And in acting this way, Jesus was not corrupted with the sinful nature that we are all corrupted with. Now, in saying this, we have to admit that we are looking back on the Scriptures. We are looking in hindsight and seeing this. It's not as if during the curse, God says that all of Adam's children will share in his sinfulness unless there is a virgin conception. But we do have good evidence from Scripture that this is what God intended. It's telling that in the very first promise of the gospel, even in the midst of the curse, God doesn't say to Adam that his offspring will crush the head of the serpent. No, he makes that promise to Eve. It's the offspring of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. In Galatians 4.4, talking about our freedom from slavery, Paul makes a particular point that Jesus was born of a woman. These are just hints, but they point to the fact that it was necessary for Jesus to not be under the headship 
of Adam so that he didn't share in our sinful nature. Jesus shares fully in our humanity, but not in our sinfulness. So those are the two reasons why the virgin conception of Jesus was essential. Why was he conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? To confirm that he is truly God and truly man, and to confirm that he is not stained by sin, but is a perfect and spotless human being. And you may be asking, why does all this matter? Why does it matter if Jesus was fully God and fully man? Or what's the big deal if he had a sinful nature? And the answer is found in the other thing that Matthew teaches us about Jesus in this text. He teaches us about Jesus' mission, why it is that he came into the world. The second line of the prophecy from Isaiah says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew says this is a fulfillment of what the angel tells Joseph to name Jesus in verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What did Jesus come into the world to do? There are a lot of answers to that question that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But the question is truly answered in these two names of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us, which we've already seen in his identity as truly God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. But he is also Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, or the Lord saves. But notice that the angel makes it explicit what Jesus is going to save us from. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Is anyone a little disappointed by the way that the angel ends that sentence? Matthew's original audience certainly would have been disappointed by that. They wanted Jesus to save them from their enemies. God's people had been ruled and oppressed for hundreds of years now, first by Babylon, then Persia, and now by Rome. Who cares about our sins, they would say. Save us from our enemies. How many of us wish that sentence ended differently? How many of you wish that Jesus came to save you from being unpopular? Or to save you from not being able to have children? or from the sickness you are enduring, or a job you hate, or from an uncertain future, of all the problems in our life that we want saving from, sin seems like the least concern. But this is because we misunderstand sin, and also because we misunderstand what it means for Jesus to save us from our sin. If you ask most Christians what it means for Jesus to save us from our sin, they would probably get it half right. Well, when you sin against God, you deserve punishment, which is God's judgment and eternity in hell. So when Jesus saves us from our sin, he's saving us from the punishment of hell. And that's true. It is absolutely true and fundamental that Jesus saves us from the penalty of our sin. That's a legal way of thinking about sin, and it is all throughout Scripture. But the Bible also describes sin organically. 
James compares sin to a baby growing and then being born, and to a spring that bubbles up from under the ground. Jesus compares sin to a tree that bears evil fruit. And what all those organic metaphors teach us about sin is that sin has consequences. Genesis 3 says that death is in the world because of sin. It also says that work and childbearing are painful because of sin. Romans 8 says that all creation was subjected to futility because of sin. We see these things everywhere. Loneliness, sickness, deteriorating bodies and minds, toxic relationships, sadness, worry, fear, all of those are consequences of sin. And think about that organic metaphor. Think about your garden or your flower bed. How many of you have had to pull weeds out of a garden or a flower bed? If you have, then you know what happens when you rip up the weed and the root stays in the ground. What happens? It just grows right back. If you have not done anything to the root, the weed will just grow right back. Sin is the root. And death and sadness and all the miseries of this life are the top of the weed. So when the angel says that Jesus will save his people from their sins, he means that Jesus is going to rip up the root. He isn't just going to take away our punishment and leave you in your sin. He isn't just going to take away your loneliness or pain or sadness temporarily. Jesus has come to take away sin itself. He has come to save us from our sins and from all the miserable consequences of sin. As the great hymn Joy to the World proclaims, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what we're going to see Jesus say in a hundred different ways throughout this gospel. Those are the two things that Matthew says that are fulfilled in this prophecy. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and He has given His name, Jesus, These things teach us that he will save his people from their sins, that he is God with us. But there's one final note that this text ends on. The text isn't just about Jesus. If you look closely, you see that the character in the forefront of this passage is actually Joseph. Luke's account of Jesus' birth focuses in on Mary and the angel coming to her and her obedience But this account in Matthew puts Joseph at the forefront. He's the one who is met with the challenge of a pregnant fiancé. He's the one to whom God sends an angel to proclaim the amazing news that this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and also to issue the challenging command to take Mary as his wife and to take legal and parental responsibility for Jesus. And Joseph is the first person we see in this gospel who obeys the hard call of discipleship. Verses 24 and 25 say, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew works hard to show us that Joseph obeyed the command of the angel exactly. 
We take Joseph's obedience for granted because we know that it happened. But in purely historical terms, Joseph could have responded like the rich young man of Matthew 19 and walked away sad, leaving Mary on her own and Jesus without a father to raise him, teach him, and protect him. And in terms of the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph sets the tone for this question that we will be met with again and again. How will you respond to Jesus? Yes, it is great to intellectually acknowledge that Jesus is both God and man. And yes, we can see that he will save his people from their sins. But throughout the gospel, we learn that right belief in Jesus must always be accompanied by right response to Jesus. Jesus refuses to be an intellectual or philosophical idea. He is a person with whom you will either follow or reject. He doesn't just ask the disciples, who do people say that I am? He also tells them to pick up their cross and follow him down the difficult road of discipleship. But that difficult road is also the road to freedom and to fellowship with God. Let us follow our Savior, Jesus, on that road. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you not just that you sent him into the world to save us from our sins, but that you orchestrated each and every event leading up to and coming from that event. We pray that we would see in Jesus our hope and our salvation and our joy, and that we wouldn't just see him, but that we would run to him and cling to him always. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.